Well, if you'll turn in your Bible with me, please, to now 2 Peter, as we move on to the second epistle of the Apostle Peter. And we're going to begin at verse 1. Let's read uh, verses 1 through 3 tonight. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. I had some ambition to get to verse 4, but we're going to have to take verse 4 up. I think next week. So let's pray together and we'll read the opening three verses. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your servant, uh, Simon Peter. We thank you for his conversion to Christ. We thank you for his uh, restoration to Christ. We thank you for the Spirit being poured out on him to preach the gospel of Christ to the multitudes. We thank you, Lord, for this letter. We thank you for inspiring it and preserving and keeping it. Now, Lord, we pray that we'd profit from it. We ask, Lord, for your blessing tonight. We need you, Lord. We want to love you more. We want to serve you. We want to obey you. We want to delight ourselves in you. We want to enjoy you. So help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same, kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus, our Lord. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness, through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Amen. Well, I have a question for you before we begin the exposition here. And that is, is Christianity really a work of God? How do you know that you're not a Christian the way some people are sports enthusiasts or hobbyists or like to go to the Elks Club or are really passionate about fishing and hunting? How do you know that you're just not really a hobbyist uh, in the sense that you go to church and you like singing and you like listening to sermons? How do we know that Christianity is something far more than people's passion for movies or music or mechanics or sewing? Are we just a collection of people who have just this shared interest in religion? And just as people have a shared interest in all kinds of things, Probably more people tonight watching the NFL than Presbyterians sitting in church. Um, are, are we just enthusiasts of a different sort than people who like to go to antique shows or marathons? I think what we're going to see here in the opening verses of Peter's epistle is actually there's a fundamental difference between what we do here in the church and that of your most passionate fanatics of some kind of hobby or sports. You know, if you really bore down actually with your fanatic um, in his, whatever his hobby is, actually you really begin to see how thin their fanaticism and interest in the hobby really is. You take the sports fans who are lining the front row seats of stadiums tonight rooting for their team in the playoffs and they've got the face paint on and they've got the wig on and they've got the 
outfits on and they're cheering for the Cowboys or the 49ers and whoever may else still be left. I think the Jaguars got eliminated, I read. So, you know, whoever's left in the playoffs. But, you know, when you bore down, um, you begin to see, in a sense, it's in some ways pitiful. And I'd say that as somebody who likes sports. I don't want you to feel that I'm just like anti-sports. I'm not. But it's rather thin, isn't it? I mean, how many of them are willing to go to Africa to promote the Dallas Cowboys and live in a rural village? Uh, how, how many of them are, are willing to be thrown in a coliseum and mauled by a lion because they love the Green Bay Packers so much? How many of them are willing to lay down their life uh, to see others in, in distant lands you know, begin to follow their team. You know, when, when you realize that uh, what we call fanatics, they're really, um, is, the fanaticism is quite thin, really. And I want to argue from Peter tonight that what we have in Jesus Christ is f- far more substantive because it's not a natural inclination or hobby for us. What Peter's telling us in these opening verses is that what God has done in the true Christian's life is by way of supernatural origin, divine power. That it's not of flesh or of blood or of the will of man. It's it's not of a natural inclination. I mean, I think we could look, surely, even at Peter's own autobiography, or, or at least a biographical account, I should say, of Peter's life or that of the Apostle Paul and see that it is certainly not one's own natural inclination that led these men to live the lives they did. I mean, look at Paul, for example. Paul was trying to persecute the church. I mean, this was not just some ordinary rivalry between Auburn and Alabama. This was a man who was dedicating his life to arresting people who were following Jesus Christ, men and women, and throwing them in prison and trying to get them to blaspheme so that he could have grounds to put them to death. This is a man who is inwardly infuriated at the angelic face of Stephen as he's being stoned and cries out to the Lord Jesus Christ while he's holding the coats. Peter himself said, Lord, depart from me. I'm a man who is a sinner. And he didn't want Jesus naturally in his life. Jesus' holiness was bringing out things in Peter's memory and conscience that were bothering him things that caused him to realize that he wasn't really a good Jew after all, that he was a sinner. Now I want to give us three thoughts here tonight as we think about this subject of divine power and godliness as the foundation of who we are in Christ Jesus. First of all, the author and the audience in verse 1. Then secondly, that grace and peace be multiplied to the church, and then thirdly, the divine power that is given to the church. So first, we're going to look at the author and the audience of this letter. Secondly, we'll consider the grace and peace that is given to us in Jesus Christ, and then the divine power that sustains us, and I would argue makes us fundamentally different than somebody who is just an avid fisherman or golfer or a book lover, or something like that that people are given to. Now, 
look at verse 1. Our first point is the author and the audience. Well, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind, kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. So there's the author, Simon Peter. There's the audience, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours. So he's writing as an apostle, he's writing to Christians. Now notice here that Peter, in his letter, uses both of his names. He uses his birth name, Simon, but he uses also the name that Jesus gave him, doesn't he? He calls himself Simon Peter. He uses his familial name, and he gives also the name that the Lord gave him upon this rock, because it was Peter who confessed Jesus Christ. Uh, in the previous epistle, you'll remember that Peter just used his, his name simply as Peter. But here we're reminded that he's Simon Peter. He's the one who said, as I said a minute ago, depart from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. He's Simon, who in the moment of weakness denied the Lord three times. Simon, Simon, Satan has Ask for permission to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. But he's also the Simon who confessed Jesus. When Jesus asked the disciples, who do they say that the Son of Man is? And then asked, who do you say? And Simon said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus gave him the name Peter, Petros. Upon this rock I will build my church. Now I think he's speaking there of Peter as the rock because he was the one who confessed the truth. And it's on that truth that the church is built. Now, likewise, I want to make an application for us. You might think it's strange to make an application from the name Simon Peter. But think in your own name. You have been baptized in your name to the name of the triune God. You have been identified who you are. You know, think about that, the power of your own name. You know, you, you, you'll be in a crowd and you'll hear murmur, 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 you know, murmur, 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 and then your name. And suddenly your ears just, whew, you didn't hear anything else that was said, but you heard your name. Because that, that name is who you are. That, it, it, it is your identity. But in our baptism, our name becomes united to the name of God. You are baptized, boys and girls, in the name of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Spirit. So that your name is not only who you are by nature, but your name is also in union with the living God. That baptism, you are identified as belonging to Christ. That's why... The apostle sometimes will speak of our baptism as the baptism of Christ. We were talking about this in uh, Sunday school this morning, how you know we're baptized into, the, into all three persons of the Trinity, but sometimes the apostles will speak of that baptism in shorthand as the baptism of Christ. And why do they do that? Well, because Christ is the central actor in, in our salvation. The Father plans the salvation, the Spirit applies it, but it is Christ 
who secures it for us. Peter here, I think by saying that he is Simon Peter, is reminding us of what we're talking about. That for him, following Jesus Christ is not a mere hobby. He's a changed man by the grace of God. He was formerly a great sinner, even one who wanted not anything to do naturally with the Lord or being united to him. And yet, he is in union with him by his baptism. He is bound to Christ. And so he even says, Simon Peter, a bond servant uh, and apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, what's a bond servant? A bond servant is, is a slave, a servant. He's, a, he's the servant of the Lord. You know, Peter would show himself to be faithful to the Lord in the end, Jesus prophesied that Peter would one day be bound. And he said, when you were young, Peter, you did what you wanted. But there's a time coming when you will be old and you're going to be bound. And you won't have the liberty and the freedom you once knew in your youth. You once went wherever you wanted to go. But at the end of your life, you're going to go where you don't want to go, Peter. You're going to go there because you are united to me. I don't know about you, but I don't know any sewing club that is willing to go to death for that hobby. But that's what the apostles did. The apostles gave their lives. And they gave their lives because they knew that they were witnesses of the power of God in raising Jesus Christ from the dead. I've told you this illustration before that if you read Chuck Colson's book, one of his books, he, he notes, you remember Chuck Colson was a man who was in the Nixon White House. And when everything went south in the Nixon administration due to Watergate, Chuck Colson makes the point that it was every man for himself. They were willing to sell out everybody else so long as their own skin could be saved from the prosecutor. And yet he said not one disciple sold out who was remaining who saw the resurrected Jesus Christ. They all, even under their death, and Colson's point was, why would they give up their life for something they knew wasn't true if Jesus had not really appeared unto them in the room on multiple Lord's Days with them? He was a, Peter was a bondservant of Christ, he, but he's also an apostle, notice here, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, what does that mean to be an apostle? Well, apostles were the foundation of the church with Jesus being the cornerstone. That is, Jesus had a temporary office in his church known as the apostles in which these were men who saw Christ. They walked with Christ during his three years of earthly ministry with the exception of Paul. That's why Paul says he was an apostle untimely born. He came later. He was the surprise child at the end uh, of the story. But the rest had walked with him, and they had all been witnesses, including Paul, to Jesus' resurrection. They also all were given the Spirit to perform what we uh, are called in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, um, the works of an apostle. That is, to perform wonders and miracles. They were given powers 
to demonstrate their apostolic authority, to testify that that which they were preaching was indeed the very word of God. Now, let me say, since it is contended, that there is no indication in the scriptures in the New Testament that Peter was of any higher rank than any other apostle in the church contra the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church tries to argue that Peter was the first pope and that Peter had authority above that of other apostles. But the scriptures, I think, testify to a different story. First of all, in Acts chapter 15, we see that Peter is not speaking ex cathedra on behalf of everybody else, but he is one of many speakers in a debate. That is, Luke tells us in Acts 15, during the debate around the controversy surrounding Gentiles and justification by faith alone, Peter was one of the early speakers, but Luke tells us there were many other speakers and that the debate went on for a long time so that we don't get this sense that Peter has authority above the others. Number two, we see that Peter was rebuked openly by the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. We see that Peter erred in the Gentile controversy in that he began to hold himself aloof from Gentiles when the men from James came in. Also, interestingly, Peter is never mentioned as being in Rome when you get to chapter 16 in the book of Romans. Now you read that list of names in chapter 16 and you'll realize there are a lot of names named. And Peter is never mentioned as one of the people that needs to be greeted. Also, Peter is never mentioned again after the Jerusalem council in Acts chapter 15. We never hear of Peter again historically. We, it got, the, the drama shifts to Paul and to the three missionary journeys. We never, we never read of Peter again. Also, we're, we know that Peter himself said that he was a, an apostle to whom? To the Jews. And that Paul was an apostle to the Gentiles. So that seems to indicate that, there was, that Peter was not going to be going to Italy but rather staying in Jerusalem. Now I say all that because the the scripture needs to be the basis for our church government. The the idea of the office of the Pope is, is a late idea in terms of the history of the church. Um, Now I do not want to move. I want to move on though to the audience here. So we have there the author, Simon Peter, a bonser, an apostle of Jesus Christ. But then the audience, this is still in point number one, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So secondly, the audience. Now, we don't know specifically who's in view here, but... They're not mentioned. 
Uh, it's not like Paul's letters where he says to the church at Rome, the church at Ephesus or something like that. But they are those who what? Believe in Jesus Christ. They possess the same faith as that of the apostle. Now, Ephesians chapter 2, we know that this to be true because we are told that our faith comes from God. Whether you're an apostle or whether you're an ordinary Christian in the church, the faith is a common faith. It's a gift of God given by grace and that Jesus is the object of that faith. Faith is the instrument of, notice here, the common righteousness. He says to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours. So that it's the same faith given by the grace of God to everyone. Now, there may be obviously some that have larger faith than others, but that the faith is the same in terms of justification because Christ is the same Savior for everyone. Whether you have a little faith or whether you have a lot of faith, it's the object of your faith is Jesus Christ who saves. Notice here he says that uh, we have the same kind of faith uh, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is, the righteousness that we receive is the righteousness of the Lord imputed to us. The righteousness, notice here he says, of God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So he calls Jesus Christ in the opening verse, divine, deity. Jesus is called our God and Savior. The same thing that Thomas said when Thomas showed up later and said he wouldn't believe unless he touched the Lord. And then Thomas says, my Lord and my God. Here you have the same thing. Peter calling Jesus Christ, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is his righteousness that is ours by faith. We find acceptance with God through faith in Jesus Christ. But I want to keep moving here, and that is to verse 2, to look at the grace and the peace multiplied. Now here we see that Peter says, may the grace of God increase in our lives greatly. He says, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God. That is, he is desirous that the church would grow in grace and receive more grace. Not a grace that increases our justification. Let me say that again. Not a grace that increases your justification. You cannot increase your justification. Again, despite what Rome says, the Roman church teaches that you can do uh, extraordinary works, what they call works of supererogation, if you want to know the theological term, in which you do more works than is required by God. And therefore, you have extra merit. You have more merit than you need for heaven because you've earned it. And so it goes to Rome and the Pope gets to dispense uh, this merit in ways that he sees fit. You can get an indulgence and the Pope draws down from the treasury of merit, uh, so to speak. But the Bible doesn't know anything of that silliness. Here is not a grace that increases our justification, but it is a grace that can increase within us and can increase our sanctification, our holiness before God. You see, the Roman Catholic blends justification and sanctification. We rightly make a distinction between the two. We put them next door to each other. They are side by side. They're neighbors. Without sanctification, there is no justification. And justification 
comes first by faith in Christ, then sanctification follows. Sanctification being a lifelong process where justification is a one-time act of God's grace. But what Peter is saying here is the grace that he is seeking to be multiplied is a grace that increases in the knowledge of God and Jesus Christ. That is, that we wouldn't always be infants in the Lord. Remember, the author of Hebrews says that the time has come for you to grow in maturity. Why are we still covering the same ground again and again? You should be teachers by this point, he says. And so Peter here is praying that the church to whom he's writing would increase in grace and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Now, we all need to grow in grace. I want to ask you a question or two tonight by way of a diagnostic question. I want to ask you, are you trying to grow in grace? Are you remembering the parable of the foolish and the wise virgins? What's that oil in the lamp? I think it's the grace of God, isn't it? It's the grace of God. What was the problem with the foolish virgins? The problem was that they were running out of oil. They didn't prepare for the delay of the coming of the bridegroom and the need to persevere. And and they're running out of fuel. They're running out of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a pastoral warning for us. When I was a new Christian, I used to pray for God to cause me to grow in grace because I felt really... um, I just felt very young in the faith compared to friends that I had who seemed to know the Bible better than me, who, you know, had grown up in the church. I felt like I always had this kind of gap between me and them, and and I always felt like I was behind. And so when I was a college student and I came to Christ, I think I prayed almost on a regular daily basis that I would grow in grace. And I probably, to my own shame, don't pray that prayer like I used to. Um... And, and probably we should pray that we grow in grace. I probably need to pray for it more because now I've hit middle age. And as one uh, pastor once said, that older Christians often do not finish as well as they should. Um, the Bible says, though, if we'll stay in the grace of God, our bodies may grow weaker, but our inner man has the promise of being strengthened day by day. We see Abraham, Moses, Joshua, Anna, um, Paul, the aged he calls himself, all growing in grace, even at the end of their life. Joshua, um, you know, still strong in the Lord at the very end. Moses, the same. And so we ought to be striving. And so those of you who are middle-aged and above, I do want to continue to challenge you to be growing in grace and not resting on past laurels. Now, Peter says, grace and peace be multiplied to you. Notice here that it's, he, he's wanting this to not just be by way of addition, but multiplication even, that you would exponentially be growing in the knowledge of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would know the Lord better when you're in your 80s than when you do now, that you would walk with the Lord more in your 80s than you do now, that you would have more fruit in the Lord when you're old than when you do now. Not less or not plateauing, but let the grace and the peace of God be multiplied in you. Now, this is theologically what we call a synergistic work. I want you young people to know that word, 
synergistic work. Okay, what does synergism mean? What does synergistic work mean? It means this. You, you taking this down, Veach? Because you got to know this next year when you go to Reformation Bible College. Okay, you got to impress the professors there. Oh, that's a work of synergism. It means you need to cooperate with the grace of God. To grow in the knowledge and the grace of God does not take place by osmosis, by having your Bible closed on your end table <laughs> next to your bed. You have to open the book. You have to read. You have to meditate. You have to study. You have to pray. And it's not easy all the time. And yes, your flesh doesn't want to do it many days. You don't feel like doing it. But we need to do it to grow in the grace of God. Now, regeneration is a monogistic work. It means it's, it comes from God alone. God by his spirit regenerates you and causes you to be born again. You, you do not cooperate with the work of regeneration. But, but what Peter's talking about here is, is not the uh, regenerating work of God, but the growth in grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. So if you want to grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, if you want to grow in the grace of God, and, and if you want to grow in the, in, with the fruit of God in your life, you're, you're going to have to put the time in. You're going to have to put the, the effort in, the prayer time and the Bible reading. Um, it, it, is a, it is a work that we have to feed. And the problem with the foolish virgins is they, they didn't prepare. And the Lord delayed and they were shut out. They showed that they really didn't have the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ within them to begin with. If the grace of Jesus Christ has begun uh, to work within you, uh, if it's a monogistic work, then, then you will uh, with God's help, do the work of, of using the means of grace to grow in grace. Now, I want to conclude by looking at verse 3. Remember how we opened uh, this message. and We were asking ourselves, how do we experientially know whether or not I'm a Christian in the way that another guy is the member of an Elks club? That's his thing. This is my thing. He likes, you know, his hobbies, and this is my hobby. Well, look at verse 3. Peter says, seeing that his, that is God's divine power, the power of God in Jesus Christ, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Here's the difference. The person who's into marathon running, the person who's into sewing, the person who's in the stadium cheering on a sports team, he does so by common grace, natural. The natural uh, work of man. What Peter is saying is what? We are, though, objects and subjects of his divine power. Remember what I said about when you look at Peter and you look at Paul's life, their lives testify to the fact that they were not mere hobbyists. What do I mean? Meaning that they wanted to do the very opposite. Now, it is very rare for somebody to say, I hated football. I used to persecute 
football fans. I used to try and throw them in jail. I, I used to try and get them to blaspheme. I did everything in my power to stop the spread of football. And then I became a football fan. You don't hear that, do you? But that's exactly where Paul was. He was doing everything within his natural power to stop the growth of the church of Jesus Christ. And what changed? Well, it was the divine power at work within him. The Spirit of God came to him on the Damascus Road, blinded by a vision of Christ, where he cries out, Who are you, Lord? The Lord cries, called out to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And, he, and Paul is without words, Lord, who are you? He says, I am Jesus Christ. And it's not merely your people that you are afflicting and persecuting. You are going after me. You see, our, our faith in Jesus Christ it is not the mere work of a Christian culture. It's not because we are interested in religion in the way people are interested in movies. The Christian life is not merely some hobby. Now it can be to some. Woe to that person who it is. I had a friend posting on Facebook this week reminding us of the danger of making Christianity a mere hobby when he said that the professor in college, he happened to go to the same undergraduate school I did, the professor that had introduced him to love the Heidelberg Catechism was also a denier of the resurrection. Um, we are not to be those kind of people. No, the fear of the Lord, if it's genuine, it is a gracious work of the Spirit of God. Only the Spirit of God can change somebody like Saul into the Apostle Paul. Only the Holy Spirit can take somebody like Peter who even asked the Lord to leave him and make him a follower of him, even on to, we believe, his own death. The Christian life is sustained by divine power. It's not a mere interest. The Bible says, He who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of redemption. If Christianity were merely of our own interest, we would have moved on by now. We would have gone on to other things. Football fans aren't, as I said earlier, willing to move to Africa. They're, they're not willing to go to small villages at the risk of health and life in order to spread the love of the game. But Christians through the centuries have been willing to do that and more. Christians have been willing, for the sake of love for neighbor, to do all kinds of things. Christians have started schools. Christians have started churches, mission organizations. Christians have started all kinds of diaconal ministries to the poor, to the needy, uh, to people who were without hope in the world. And that is something that no mere hobbyist is willing to do. The difference is because of our foundation. We have the divine power has been granted to us, Peter says in verse 3. 
Everything pertaining to life and godliness comes from God. God has given us in Jesus Christ all that we need to sustain our love and commitment to Jesus Christ. We have a knowledge of him. Notice here, Peter says that through the true knowledge of him, that is knowing Jesus Christ as he is revealed in the scriptures. He's called us, notice here, Peter says, by his own glory and excellence. We are sustained here by something supernatural. We are sustained by something divine, something only God could do. If you are here, you are here by the grace of God. May that grace be multiplied to you, even tonight.